This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Bible is a book full of many things. In fact, this is the first of a series of talks looking at the Bible, uh, looking at the Bible being a book full of hope, a book full of joy and a book full of love. And we're going to add to that list today and see some other things that the Bible is full of. And we'll take the subject in two parts. We'll consider the book that is the Bible, why it is important that it's full of anything. And then we'll look at hope. And we're going to see some interesting things here. We'll see that hope falls into two categories. Having hope, which I really think was the intention of the title. But we'll also see references to hope that mean without hope, hopeless. And we should look at these too. And we'll also see that despite the Bible being a book full of hope, the distribution of hope in the Bible is very uneven and we'll look at that too. And we'll see why hope should be important to us. And how, if we have the right sort of hope, we can use it to change our lives. Let's start with the Bible. Why should we care what the Bible is full of? Because there is one thing that the Bible is full of. Indeed, every word in the Bible has this property. The Bible is full of the word of God. If I had to get that down to one word, the Bible is full of inspiration. God wrote every word in the Bible. How do we know this? Because the Bible says it of itself. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, these are verses that many of you will be familiar with, it's it's, uh, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, we read that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work Uh, and if we turn to the book of revelation the very last book of uh of the bible chapter 22 in fact these are almost the very last words of the bible uh, where we read in revelation chapter 22 verse 18 i warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So I think that this tells us, in addition to every word in the Bible being inspired by God, there is no material outside the Bible that is similarly inspired. That doesn't quite mean that everything written outside the Bible is wrong. But it does mean that only the Bible contains God's word and that anything written outside it could be wrong. Which is probably a good moment to look at another important biblical concept. The Bible is full of truth. In Psalm 119 verse 159, not many books in the Bible run to 159 verses. In fact, Psalm 119 is the longest uh, chapter in the Bible. We read, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Uh, We'll be coming back to steadfast love in a minute. But in Isaiah, in the prophecy of Isaiah, we read in chapter 45. uh, Isaiah 45 verse 18. 
For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And finally, just to emphasise this from Proverbs, uh, the next uh, book in the Bible, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. And so this proverb tells us that not only are all the words of God true, but we must not add to them, because our words will not always be true. So therefore we need to pay attention to the Bible. It is God's true word to us. Well, it's probably worth us also spending a minute on how the Bible is organised. The first five books of the Bible, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, are known as the law, or if we're being all Greek about it, the Pentateuch. This covers the creation, the early history of mankind, the patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and sons, the Egyptian period, the exodus from Egypt and the 40 years spent wandering in the wilderness. And as a part of all that, they contain a record of the laws and regulations that God gave to Moses for his people and their leaders that they might lead lives that were pleasing to him. The next group of books runs from Joshua to Nehemiah and are mostly historical. They are a record of the people of Israel and how they occasionally lived up to the law that they had been given but more often failed to live up to and how God tried to intervene to keep them on the right road and what the consequences of their failures to hear God, heed God's interventions were. These are followed by a group of books that are usually classified as poetry, although Job, I think, is really in a class of its own. And in that group, Psalms is perhaps the hymn book of the Bible. And then the final section to complete the Old Testament, we have the prophets. The major prophets wrote much, much more than the minor prophets, but I'm not sure that necessarily means that they were more important, but they were certainly more inspired. In the New Testament, then, we have four Gospels and Acts, each Gospel being a largely parallel account of the ministry of Jesus, but each uh, perhaps focusing on a slightly different aspect of the life of the Son of God. And then there is the book of Acts, which is arguably an extension of Luke's Gospel, which records the activities of the disciples of Jesus after his death after his resurrection and after his ascension. These then are followed by the letters of Paul, then we have the letters of everyone else, and then finally the book of Revelation, which is usually described as prophecy. What then of hope? What does hope mean? Well, the dictionary definition I found for the nine was a feeling of expectation and desire for a particular thing to happen. We're going to have to develop that meaning a bit as we work through the Bible meaning of hope. Now this is the kind of biblical subject that really lends itself to the use of a concordance. It is easy to list all the occurrences of hope and related words in the Bible and assemble some sort of analysis. Now I have finally gone online with my concordance and so I typed hope into my online ESV concordance 
And I was very surprised at the result. I was not surprised at the number of references that there were in the Bible to hope. There are 160. And that makes it a reasonably major Bible subject. But I was very surprised at where the first reference occurred. So surprised I had to refer back to my trusty paper-based concordances. I should have brought one with me, but I needed a larger car. Um, And they said the same thing. Strong's for the authorised, and I checked the NIV as well. I don't have an ESV paper concordance because the translation's too new and they haven't yet filtered down into the charity shops and second-hand bookshops. But the word hope does not occur at all in the first five books of the Bible. And I was really surprised at this. And I had to stop and think about it a bit. And it wasn't that the people in the early part of the Bible didn't have hope. It was rather more that perhaps they didn't need it. Adam and Eve did not need to hope that there was a living God who planned to give them everything they might need. God spoke to them and they knew. They may have disobeyed God. But they did this knowing of a certainty that he existed. Noah didn't need to hope that God would bring about the flood and float the ark. God told him what to do and Noah's faith in God was strong. We'll get on to faith a bit later. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they all spoke with God. And Joseph, who was the 11th son of Jacob, well, I was a bit surprised to see that he, he, that he didn't either have hope or lose hope when he was sold into slavery and then imprisoned in Egypt. But his faith too was strong and he prevailed. Moses talked to God through the burning bush. The Israelites saw the work of God every day in the wilderness when they gathered manna. They saw God in the pillar of fire at night and smoke during the day. When Joshua led the Israelites to Jericho and the walls came tumbling down, the Israelites had no doubt whose hand had been pushing. For many of us here, we share the faith of those early Israelites. We read the Bible and we know that it is true. It was God who brought down the walls of Jericho, who spoke to Moses, who saved Joseph, guided the patriarchs, and saved Noah and his family. We do not doubt these events or their author. But that is not the state of the world today, nor indeed has it ever been the state of the world at any time in the past. Many people doubt that there is a God. Many people indeed are certain that there is not one. And so today we need to start with hope. Start with the hope that there is more to life than life. That the future really will be better than the present. And that the future of man is not in the hands of chance and mankind. And many people find this difficult. And that's sad. Because today we are closer to God's word of truth than we have ever been. It's just a click away. And so it is not until the book of Ruth that we see the first mention of hope. It's a slightly marginal reference. It's when Naomi is sending her daughters-in-law away. Her daughters-in-law, by the way, were Moabites. They were not Israelites. And she makes a reference to the Leverite marriage. We're getting a bit specialist here, but not only for a moment. That if sons died without issue, as Naomi's had, then the widow should marry any younger brothers. But Naomi says effectively that she has no hope of having any further sons And she doesn't expect her daughters-in-law to hang around for 20 years until they become eligible. It's Ruth chapter 1 and verse 11. Naomi said, turn back my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? 
Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me that for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, the Leverite marriage is an important theme of the book of Ruth, and it gives me the excuse to use one of my favourite passages in the Bible to show that Ruth had learned hope from her mother-in-law and converted that hope into faith. Because in the very next verse, uh, we read that they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. See, Ruth did hope in the God of Israel. And that hope made her determined and gave her courage to leave her home and become associated with the people of God. Hold that thought. Now, during August in Stockport, we give the Bible class speakers a month off. And we read the daily readings in members' homes and discuss them. And as the Bible class secretary, I find it rather curious that the daily readings and discussions are often better attended than the Bible classes. This week, uh, as David Taylor, who is with you next week, God willing, uh, was also at the readings, I thought we would have a bit of a chat about the challenge that Ormskirk had set us. And so I asked when they thought the first reference to hope was in the Bible. And they were surprised that it occurred as late as Ruth. But someone in the group looked more closely And although the reference in Ruth is the first time the word is used in the English translations, the Hebrew word occurs earlier. There's one reference, and it's in Joshua, and it's at the Battle of Jericho. It's Joshua chapter 2, verse 14. And this is the story of the spies who spy out Jericho. And the spies said to Rahab, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours. Then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, When we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. So where is the hope in this passage? It's the word cord in the scarlet cord that Rahab was to hang outside her home. It's the same Hebrew word. It was this cord that was Rahab and her family's hope that they would be saved from the destruction of Jericho, and they were. Rahab, like Ruth, was not an Israelite, but she hoped that the spies were as good as their word, and they were. 
And if you read the book of Ruth, with some help from the Gospel of Matthew, you can see how Ruth and Rahab became related. I didn't say that the Bible was a truly remarkable book, didn't I? Well, I've got another 159 references to go, and I've spent quite a bit of time on the first one. So we do need to speed up a bit. And another early reference is in Ezra, which is worth a moment for us to think about. It's in the book of Ezra, chapter 10, verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. And this usage is important because it tells us that even when we fail, we have a hope of forgiveness and a hope of redemption. And we'll see this later. There's a reference in Esther that reminds us that if you hope for something ungodly, then you may well become unstuck. And then we get to the book of Job. There are 20 references in Job to the word hope, something again which may surprise us. But it is a very strange hope in Job. Many of the references to hope in Job are about the loss of hope. Job's friends try to break Job down, to break his faith, and to do that, they have to break his hope. And there's just one reference in Job that I'd like to look at. It's in Job chapter 27 and verse 7. I think it's Job speaking here. Uh, Job 27 verse 7. Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? And this passage tells us that if you hope for worldly, ungodly things, then your hope will fail. For whether you believe in the living God or not, it is still the Lord God who will measure out the days of every one of us. But if you hope in him, things will go much better. Which brings me on to Psalms. In the book of Psalms, we finally see hope as being associated with wanting the things concerning God. Uh, Psalm 33, verse 18, which we read earlier. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So you see that if we hope in God, he will love us steadfastly. And similarly in Psalm 71, Psalm 71 verse 4, Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Notice how this passage links hope and trust. Hoping in God is a certain hope. And this idea is developed in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 28. The hope of the righteous brings joy. But the expectation of the wicked will perish. And Proverbs eleven seven. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. Hope in the Lord, and you'll be, you'll be joyful. I may be trespassing on Brother David's talk next week. Hope in wicked things, and you will get nothing. 
Well, I'm going to skip on to the New Testament now, although there are many references to hope in the prophecies, but, but about half of the references to hope are in the New Testament. And actually, we're going to look at an Old Testament prophet quoted in the New Testament first. But when we look at the New Testament, we see also that the distribution of the word hope is unexpected. The word hope only occurs three times in the Gospels. Why is this? Again, I would suggest that in the Gospels, the people did not need to hope for their Messiah because he was with them. Jesus was the promise of God being fulfilled. In fact, one of the references to hope uh, in, the New T- in the Gospels, rather, is in Matthew 12. It's uh, Matthew 12, verse 15, um, where we read that uh, Jesus, aware of, the, aware of this, withdrew from there. He's, he's um, oh, just momentarily forgotten the context. And many followed them, and he healed them, and healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon them, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone else hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice and victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is almost a quote from Isaiah chapter 42 in the first three verses. But Matthew has paraphrased it slightly. Uh, when, when it says Gentiles at the start, it says nations uh, in the Isaiah rendering, although that's a very minor change. But it's this last line, and in his name the Gentiles will hope, which Matthew has paraphrased, I would suggest, from verse 4 of Isaiah 42, where it says that God will establish justice on the earth and that the coastlands wait for his law. But it is interesting that Matthew in his commentary paraphrases this to Jesus being the hope of the Gentiles because Jesus is our hope. In the book of Acts, hope is concentrated only in the last few chapters. Paul here speaking in front of King Agrippa, Acts 26 verse 4. Paul describing his life here, Acts 26 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nations and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul here describes his life as a model Pharisee. But then Paul talks about the hope that he has now. The hope he has in the promise of God, that he, God, will raise the dead. Further on in this chapter, Paul explains why he has this hope. Acts 26, verse 22, where Paul says, To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing. But what the prophets and Moses, and when he says the prophets and Moses, Paul means the Bible, said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Jesus can save every one of us. 
Paul develops his idea in his letters, um, in the letters that he was to write, many to Gentile ecclesias. In Romans, Paul says in chapter 8, verse 18, uh, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And Paul makes a a very important point here. He reminds us that what we hope for is something that we do not have. For if our hope is for what we have, it is not hope. And it is the writer to the Hebrews who most clearly explains the importance of hope at the start of the very well-known chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews where we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here we see why we need hope. Or rather, why we need to start with hope. Because we need to want the things that we have not seen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that in being risen from the dead, he has made possible for our salvation. And that we too can hope for resurrection to immortal life. We can't really look at hope without looking at the chapter that connects hope to faith And then to that other essential ingredient, love. Paul's first letter to Corinth in chapter 13. uh, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so we're starting to see another important point here. Hope on its own isn't enough. To enjoy the results of the hope of God, you have to hope for the right things. Because if you hope for the right things, your hope can be developed into faith. And if your faith is strong, you will be shown steadfast love by the Lord God as we read in Psalms and then you can look forward to the resurrection and have a hope of a life unending in the kingdom of God Jesus however knew that we would struggle to achieve this right this righteous hope and faith on our own and so John who prepared the people of Israel for Jesus developed a ceremony 
by which the people could show to others that they had a hope in the God of Israel and his promises. Promises that they saw demonstrated in Jesus, the Son of God. And this was baptism. The symbolic washing away of the sins of the former life and the rebirth into a new life committed to following the path that Jesus showed to us. And having made this demonstration that those committed to following the way of Christ, Christians, joined together into groups or congregations or churches or ecclesias. That they might work together, helping each other and sharing the faith and the hope that they had. And so let us conclude our look at the hope that is to be found in the Bible with some words from Peter. This is in Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, where we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, if you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Remember how we saw how hope was in the things that we have not seen? Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. And that's next week's subject. That is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk.